Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. So today, we finish up a series that we've been in all summer. We have spent 12 weeks in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at the subject of spiritual warfare in a series simply entitled, The War. We've been talking about what it means to battle our enemy, the fact that we do have an enemy, an enemy that seeks our demise, that seeks to undo the forward momentum of the body of Christ, an enemy that is seditious, an enemy that, as we talked about last week, fights always inevitably in a close quarter combat situation and fights dirty. And therefore, the the necessity for us is to put on what Paul describes as a metaphorical body of armor a panoply, if you will, that covers every vital part of us. And we've talked about what it means to wear the belt of truth, which means to to always walk in the light and to walk in integrity and to be the same person in the dark that you are in the light. We've talked about what it means to don the breastplate of righteousness and to make the right decision even when it's the hard one. We've talked about what it means to wear the shoes of the gospel so that we stand even as the ground underneath us may shift in an immovable posture with the ability to move forward and share this gospel actively. We've talked about what it means to bear the shield of faith so that even when Satan's worst is coming down upon us and it would seem as though the sky itself is on fire, we can throw that shield up and not only resist what comes our way, but continue to move forward. We have, over the last 12 weeks, looked at what I believe is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. And today... We finish up by Paul, Paul's summation of all of this. He sums it up with these words. If you look with me at verses 18 to 20 of Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In other words, here's the whole reason for the armor, that the gospel goes forward, that God's people live both together and in victory. But in order for that to happen, we don't just put on the panoply of God. There are two other emphases in these final verses. The first is constant prayer. Pastor David is going to be covering the the subject of fasting with us very soon. What does it mean to fast? What is the meaning of fasting? What what role does that play in the lives of believers? It's a difficult and probably not too popular subject in, in a culture full of gluttons. And yet, nonetheless, this is where we find ourselves at a point now, a very, a very crucial turning point in the life of covenant, where we're either going to turn a corner or we're not for the glory of God. And in order to turn that corner for the glory of God, we must be focused on the task ahead. And so we'll be declaring a fast between the the dates of September the 10th and the 19th. 
And if you want to do it all month, you can. There's several ways you can do this. We're not asking anybody and everybody to go without food for 30 days. We know some of you, your doctor would um, would advise against that. And there's several different ways you can do this. And so uh, Pastor Dave will be unpacking that. But along with fasting is this idea of prayer that it should happen all times and that it should be, Paul says, in the Spirit. Now, the reason for that is because everything in our lives as followers of Jesus is an inherently spiritual matter. We're going to be trained in abuse today by individual by an individual who himself has been trained by prosecutors and social workers and others, and we might be tempted to think that that's not a spiritual issue, it's a civil one. Brothers and sisters, it's not. It's a deeply spiritual issue, and we will either be obedient in that or we will not. And in order to move forward in a way that glorifies God, we have to move forward in constant prayer. Because we need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to navigate this battle together. Constant prayer. Then the other thing that's inferred in this, in this text is constant community. We're told to, to keep alert. We're told to make supplication on behalf of, notice what he says there, all the saints. On behalf of all the saints. This isn't a Lone Ranger thing. If you consider this within the warfare motif that we've been considering in Ephesians 6, it means that we're supposed to have each other's backs as well as the backs of our leaders, not, not unconditionally, but in a way that is, that is keyed toward the advance of God's kingdom in spiritual warfare. Paul goes on to say, and also for me, I, I need your prayers as well, that I would be bold in the way that I present the gospel. And so the bottom line is to be victorious, we have to stand in the armor and we also have to stand together. We have to stand together. Now, let me tell you what our enemy has done, particularly in the United States of America, within the church in this particular culture, in order to try to confound that and undo that. He has not told us that we need to give up faith. Instead, what he's done is he's replaced this genuine Christian faith that Paul speaks about with a replacement. An alternative faith that has three characteristics. First of all, it's an individualized faith. There is nothing more American than individualism, is there? And in a sense, that's not always a bad thing. Uh, you, you, may, you can make a legitimate argument that in terms of some areas of our civil society that, that individualism is a good thing. But when you syncretize individualism into Christianity, what you get is someone who says, I can follow Jesus all on my own. I don't need the church. I don't need the church, or my family is the church, or this is my church, or that is my church. And then you look at that thing, whatever it is that they say is their church, and it bears no resemblance whatsoever to what you find in the New Testament. And so uh, if you've got a friend or a coworker or someone who's like that, and, they, and they, they use that phrase, I would just ask you to humbly, if you can sit down with them, ask them the following questions. Who are your pastors? So you can't have a church without elders and deacons. New Testament pretty well makes that clear. Who are your pastors? Who are your deacons? How is the prescribed order for Christ's body in the New Testament honored in this thing that you're calling the church? How's that happening? How is formative and reformative discipline and accountability practiced? If you, if you ask those questions to someone who has a radically individualized alternative faith, you know what you're going to get? Crickets. They don't know how to answer the question. It's because there is no answer to that question. An individualized, lone ranger kind of faith is, according to the New Testament, no faith at all. And, and it is the fact that that statement is even remotely controversial in this century tells you how deep doo-doo we're in. Can I say that? Yeah, that's where we're at. Individualized faith. Here's another one, privatized faith. 
In other words, not only is it, is it individual, I don't need other people, but it's privatized in the sense that my relationship with Jesus is all about me. It's about me living a victorious life. Well, undoubtedly, God wants all of us to live a victorious life. It's one of the reasons that Ephesians 6 was written, is so that we can have that kind of life. But brothers and sisters, that life cannot be found disconnected to the larger body. And the reason we know that is because the bulk of the New Testament was not written to individuals. It was written to churches and the aim of God in giving us the scriptures is not so much me living a victorious life as it is me in my place within the larger body of Christ as it successfully and victoriously executes its mission. Satan wants to individualize our faith. He wants to privatize our faith. Thirdly, he wants to give us a myopic faith. Uh, and this may frankly be one of the one of the most seditious things that he's done in the West is the reduction of Christian faith to nothing more than individual salvation. We are all about bringing people to faith in Christ. Well, we're going to do a series on evangelism late this fall. You're going to find out my heart for evangelism. My hope is that we'll develop a greater heart for evangelism. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ can never be less than calling the world to bow the knee to King Jesus. But it must be more than that. It's not merely about bringing people to individual salvation. You, you think about the Christian heroes that we revere and that we read about, everyone from Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Martin Luther King, would they have ever accomplished the things that they accomplished in the society and in the larger world? Would they have changed the world in the ways that we read about today had they had a faith as myopic as some of us who think, well, don't worry about race relations, don't worry about Nazi Germany, don't worry about systemic injustice, don't worry about some of those things Pastor Joel is going to talk about in a few weeks, let's just get people saved. That's a myopic faith. It's not wrong, but it's woefully incomplete. And these are the things, these, these last three verses of Ephesians of this text remind us that the purpose of spiritual warfare is not just my individual good as a follower of Jesus. It's the good of the entire body of Christ so that the church can make its God-ordained promise in the world. And here's the promise we find, that if we will link up the way we're supposed to if we will stand back to back against our enemy Satan, and if we will do it individually clothed in the armor of God and saturated with prayer, you know what Jesus has promised? Overwhelming victory. That is ours. Now, I got to tell you, I, I do. I believe we're at a critical time in the life of our church. I'm going to talk about that more in just a few moments. The difference between victory and defeat is whether we as the body will commit together to the very things we've been talking about all summer. Whether or not we will clothe ourselves in the armor of God. And so I want us to spend the balance of our time today looking at what that promise looks like when it's fleshed out. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the passage that Pastor Jeff read at the outset of our time together. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, as you're turning there, let me give you something of the, of the context of this passage. This part of Matthew is actually transitional. Uh, up until this point, the focus has largely been on Jesus' miracles. It's largely, to, to, to a great degree, been on identifying him as the fulfillment of various Old Testament prophets uh, the, the, of, of their words, because Matthew is a Jew and he's writing to a Jewish audience and he wants them to see, don't miss your Messiah, don't have to look in the rearview mirror, this man is your Messiah, here is all of the proof of that. And so most of the emphasis has been on that and... Most of the emphasis has been on Jesus' nonstop talk about the kingdom of God. It's mentioned more than 80 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone. What does it mean to be a person 
who is about the kingdom of God. Now, what's beginning to happen, though, after this portion of text that we're going to read, he's going to shift his focus more pointedly toward the cross, where he will give his life as, as, as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for humanity. And this conversation that we're about to read that we're actually able to be a, a fly on the wall, literally, and look at this conversation, it reveals to his disciples, but also to you and me, how this kingdom is going to come about. Why, why, is, this, why is this exchange in Matthew important? Why is spiritual warfare important? Because this is Jesus' vision for us. And it begins with his desire that we together would wear his identity. Look at Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So they've just finished feeding 4,000 people. That's, that's the background for all of this. And they're, they're now going to go on spiritual retreat. They're going to separate themselves from the crowds and from the ministry because even Jesus understood you can't just keep doing that stuff 24-7. Even the Son of God had to rest. And so he's taking some time. He's going to separate. And so what they do is they head up the Jordan River around 25 miles up to the headwaters of that area that is known at this point as Caesarea Philippi. had been known uh, by this point in history uh, by that name for just a couple of years. Philip, one of the sons of Herod, had named that district after both himself and Caesar Augustus. Uh, but one of the things you may not know is that prior to its designation as Caesarea Philippi, it went by another name. It was called Peneus. And it was called Peneus because it was dedicated to the worship of the Greek god Pan. I want you to think about that context for a moment, that this is where Jesus intentionally takes his disciples on spiritual retreat. You know, once a year, we take our entire staff somewhere. And there's a theme and there's an emphasis, and there's something we want them to learn. We knew that this year would be a year of prayer. Uh, we knew that probably fasting was going to be a part of that role. And so this year we went to New York City. And among other things, we, we toured and we, we, we spent some time at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Some of the folks that God, by his grace, is, I mean, they've just done incredible work in that area. And we exposed our, our staff to that. There have been times when we went to D.C. together. But we, we always pick a place and we go to that place for a specific purpose. So imagine that 2020's rolled around and Pastor Joel walks into the room and the entire staff waits with bated breath, wondering, where are we going to go this year? And I look at them and I go, Vegas, baby. We're going to Vegas. That's basically what's happening. Like, we're going to have a retreat right on the strip. Jesus is choosing not only to take his disciples away from ministry for a moment, have some, a moment of spiritual retreat, but he purposefully chooses one of the most pagan areas in the region in order to have that. That is worthy of note. And that's something we're going to have to come back to in just a moment. But having arrived, he then asked this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? What are people saying about me? That's an important question. Do you know? Do you know what your friends, your co-workers, your non-Christian associates, what, what are they saying about Jesus? Do you know what wider culture is saying about Jesus? Are you aware of that? The disciples are. Uh, they, they very quickly answer the question. Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. For, as it turns out, first century Palestine didn't hate the guy. They loved him, at least now. They don't hate him yet. That comes later. But right now, they like him. They're saying all kinds of wonderful things about him. And as I look at that response, I think that, that sounds a lot like the present day, doesn't it? When I turn on the television, when I look at the internet, when I talk to unbelieving friends and neighbors in this community or wherever I happen to be, I, I don't hear Jesus 
cursed a lot. I, I don't. I don't hear him talk down about. Uh, what I do understand is that everybody from Oprah to Deepak Chopra to Kanye West to Reza Aslan to Rob Bell says wonderful things about him and what a wise philosopher he is and what a wonderful sage and teacher he is, what a powerful moral example he is. Jesus, if you think about it, is more popular than he's ever been. He's just not God. And that really makes all the difference, doesn't it? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now comes a more pointed question after they've asked that question. Who do you say that I am? That's verse 15. Now, now this, brothers and sisters, is the foundational question of spiritual warfare. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes that carry the gospel of peace, shield of faith, sword of the spirit that we talked about just last week, helmet of salvation. All those things are incredibly important, but they mean nothing if you get this one wrong. A foundational question of spiritual warfare, like a foundational question of life, is the question, who is God? Hey, can we at least agree that if you get that one wrong, it only goes downhill from there? It only goes downhill. Yeah, you better get that one right. And so what's, what's interesting to me, particularly in this day and age, is that there's so many people that fight not being offended when non-Christians make statements about Jesus that are either respectful but wrong or disrespectful and wrong. I, I read your Facebook pages. Why the offense? People did the same thing in the first century. Why, why the offense? It, it, it's interesting to me. It's easy, so easy as a Christ follower, like, like the rest of the world, and be offended when someone inaccurately characterizes our faith. Christians are misogynistic. Christians are homophobes. Christians are, Christians are that. And then you, you immediately want to rise to the defense. Don't do that. That's not spiritual warfare. That's, that's you being offended and insecure. You know I love you, right? You still love me? You still my friends? Okay. Don't, don't, don't stick your chest out in the middle of all that. What they say about Jesus is of no consequence. Maybe to their own soul, but not to the forward momentum of the kingdom. You know what really matters? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? You get that right in your own heart. You get that right in your own soul. You march forward in that truth. Uh, one of our, our dear friends, a, a good friend of mine, he's a, he's a leader in another world religion. And uh, he's part of our partnership with the One America movement here. And he and I were talking not too long ago. And he said, you know, Joel, I love you, man. And I know your heart because we've spent a lot of time together. And, and, and I watch you online uh, and I watch the church almost every Sunday because their, their day of worship is another day of the week. And he said, I, I watch you almost every Sunday. And man, there's things you say that really sting and they feel exclusive. And, and I feel like I'm an outsider looking in and, I, and, it, and, it, and it hurts me. And I've, I've just had to learn. He said, one of the things I appreciate about our friendship is that I've had to learn that you love me. When you say things like that, you believe them strongly and you're not moving from them, but you still love me. And there's, there's been a conflict within me that, that's really had to struggle through that. And, and here's what I said to him. I said, well, brother, listen, here's the way I would encourage you to look at this. If Jesus is who you think he is, 
then I'm wrong. All right. And according to my own faith, this is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, we, that's you and me, are of all people most to be pitied. So if I'm wrong, you shouldn't get angry because I've said something you disagree with. You should pity me because I'm worshiping a dead man that I think, I, that I think is alive. But if I'm right, and Jesus is exactly who he says he was in the Gospels, then whether you're offended or not is really of no consequence. Your opinion, my opinion, they're irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what is true. What is true? So let me ask you again, covenant family, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Uh, the next time somebody says something about Jesus that offends you, just, just remember the kingdom of God is not helped by your being offended. We have enough of that in our culture, don't you think? Yeah. So many people just looking for a reason to be offended. Instead, think of it in the way that I encourage my friend to think of it. If, if they are right, then Jesus deserves every bad thing they're saying about him. But if they are wrong, then their opinion is irrelevant. There's no need to be offended. But there is a need to answer this question. Who do you, who do I say that the Son of Man is? Now, Peter setting a great example for us, and he doesn't always do that, does he? But in this moment, he does. He says the following in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is who you are. Now, let me, let me stress the importance of this confession because it's about a lot more th than just being orthodox. You and I have no, all that, all that armor stuff that we've been talking about, it's nothing, all right? It's like I got, we got a new computer one time, and I brought it home. And this is back when, you know, it was, how many of you still have a desktop? You're still living in the 20th century. You were, yeah, okay. Bought a desktop, brought it home. Speakers come separate, right? Couldn't get the speakers to work. Uninstalled and reinstalled the application on that very cutting edge Windows 3.1. Still didn't work. Nothing worked. I had all the pieces, couldn't get the speakers to work. I must have spent 45 minutes working on this before I realized that these speakers are power speakers and they must be plugged in because I'm quick like that. That you can have like you can have all the pieces you can move through Ephesians 6 and go check got this check I got that check I got that and still live powerless and still live defeated there is no power without this confession you get this like it this is where it starts this you must get right now here's the here's the great news every time someone starts there more greatly ensures their spiritual victory. Uh, Y'all, I'm just telling you, September's coming. The last Sunday in September is a fifth Sunday, so you know what we do around here. We, we put double the chairs out. We bring the whole community in under one roof for one service. You, whatever you got going on at 1030 or whatever, you just need to cancel it. You need to be here. Or you're going to miss something amazing. 
God willing and pending your affirmation, we'll be laying our hands that Sunday on new elders and new deacons. You're going to hear the future of our vision. We're going to put a couple of individuals in front of you that are being sent out to plant churches, and we're going to be inviting some of you who feel called to join them. You remember several months ago, I told you those days were probably coming when we were going to say, all right, it is time to take the things that the Lord has given us and blessed us with here at Covenant and start to give that stuff away. This is what he's calling us to do. It's going to be an exciting, exciting Sunday. But without the confession that we just heard from Peter, there's no power in any of that. Every time a a person goes out to plant another church, and it actually happens, okay? I'm not talking about somebody gets mad because you don't do it their way, and they go out and they rent space, and they try to get a bunch of people that are are mad like them to come in. That's not church planting. The guys that we're talking about, you're going to get to meet them. They're the real deal which is why we have no issue whatsoever inviting you to join them if God so leads you to do that in Hagerstown and in Lovettsville, Virginia. I can't wait. I'm not telling you anything else until then. All right? Every time a church is successfully planted, every time someone hears and receives the gospel, every time there's an unengaged people group anywhere in the world who for the very first time hears the name of Jesus, you know how that starts? By a man or woman filled to the brim with the Spirit of God, clothed in the panoply of God, stepping with humble confidence into the midst of that situation and declaring unapologetically, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's your identity. That's your identity that can help your marriage. That's your identity that can help you in any other area of life. You know, in any battle, you're always looking for the uniform, aren't you? Anybody that's served in a forward area or been in combat, you know. You look for that red, white, and blue on the shoulder, don't you? And you know when I see that mark, those are my people. Brothers and sisters, this is how you wear the identity of Jesus. This is the mark when you know someone is on your side. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've got to live in that identity. And then secondly, we've got to, we've got to move under his guidance. Here's what Jesus says right on the, the heels of Peter's confession. Now, this is I find this funny because... Peter gets it right. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a powerful, you would almost expect Jesus to say, wow, that's, that's impressive. You must've gone to Southern seminary. Like that's amazing. Actually what he says is, is this blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So it's a very, um, It's a very sanitized way of saying, now I see the blessing of God on you, Peter. You know how I know the blessing of God is on you? Because you're too stupid to have figured that out on your own. It is the grace of God that did that to you. You had no capability to understand that, to articulate that. That powerful declaration is not inherent within you. It came through you by the power of the Holy Spirit as a result of no less than divine revelation. God reveals this truth to him, and he speaks. Now, that that conviction, as a result of divine revelation, is coming at at a transactional point in the story. Because, as we know, if you read the rest of Matthew, hard times are coming on the disciples. Peter will not always get this right. In fact, he will fail utterly. And by the way, this is what I'm praying. I know I've said a couple of weeks ago that we've had some very uh, notable, well-known pastors who have actually come out very publicly and said, I'm no longer Christian. That falling away happens. John says, 
they went out from us so that it might be demonstrated that they were never of us. But don't lose hope just yet. If one of those was someone you looked up to, and you're, you're trying to wonder what, what's going on with them, I just want you to remember the story of Peter, who denies the Lord, but who is restored. As long as those men are living and sucking wind, there's opportunity to come home. Uh, and we, we need to pray for that. Faith falters sometimes. It is only by the sovereign power of God's Spirit that any of us stay in this game. Let's pray for their redemption. Let's pray for them to come home. And let's pray for ourselves. Because just as hard times were coming in, in Matthew's Gospel, they're, they're coming. Pastor, what do you know that I don't know? I, nothing. I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't, but I can tell you this. I know that no church can see the growth that we've seen. No church can, um, can, can bring together the resources that we brought together to battle something as acute in our society as opioid addiction and death. No church can make the kind of difference that we are beginning to make without drawing attention from the enemy. An enemy who we've already learned through this series fights dirty. So it's coming. A pruning is coming. There's, there's some tough stuff coming. And if we don't have the armor of God empowered by the Spirit with a sure declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we're going to be defeated. We're going to be defeated. And so we've got to get ready for this, and we've got to understand that we only move forward under His guidance, under the, the power of God. That, that battle could come internally, for conflict and misunderstanding and ungodly approaches to conflict, that conflict could come externally. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but in this particular culture, it's a little harder to be a follower of Jesus than it used to be. It's a lot harder, actually, isn't it? Can we just go ahead and say that? It's a lot harder to be a follower of Jesus than it, than it used to be. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have everything you need within you, which is why, uh, as we conclude this series, we don't just need to wear his identity, make sure we're moving under his hand and, and recognizing of ourselves what he said of Peter, but we need to work in his power. Jesus goes on and makes a promise to Peter. Now keep in mind, after all this, Peter's going to deny him. Peter's going to struggle. There's going to be there's going to be tough times coming. And so, the only thing you can really rely on in moments like that is a promise like this one. Look at these words from your Savior. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. In heaven now but before we get too deeply into what this means there's a couple of things we we probably should clear up we're a multi-denominational body people coming from catholic protestant orthodox non-christian environments and yeah who knows what you have heard about this particular text uh growing up and so you need to know that there's a lot of questions around what this means when he says of peter on this rock I will build my church. Our Catholic friends, for example, say that this is the historic beginning point of the papacy and that Peter is the first pope. And it's all based on the assumption that Jesus builds his church on the foundation of this man named Peter. And therefore, if Peter's the first pope, then the papacy is therefore the foundation on which the true church is built. And what eventually gets extrapolated from that is this highly complicated ecclesiastical system 
And they say, all this is necessary because after all, this is what Jesus is building his church on. Now, before we jump too hard on our Catholic friends about that, we also need to admit Protestants haven't always handled this text very well either, if for no other reason than for the last 500 years, our propensity has been to interpret it in light of what the Catholics teach so that we can say we're not that as opposed to what the text actually says. And so we actually need to look at this, and we come to the conclusion that when he says, I'm going to build my church on the rock, he actually is referring to Peter. But when Paul, in Ephesians 2, speaks of the apostles, including Peter, as the foundation of the church, he's not, he's not speaking of those men him, themselves. He's speaking of their confession and the message that they founded and that they bring. This isn't talking about Peter as a man, as if somehow inherently within a man, simply because he holds an office, he has authority that is infallible. This is based off the confession. Remember the exchange that took place before all of this. Who do other people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response here is essentially, now I can build my church on that. I can build my church on that anywhere in the world that that confession is uttered, I can build a church on it. That's the overwhelming victory. And then he goes further to say, and that church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the phrase hell here, it literally is the Greek term Hades, and it refers to the realm of the dead. Now, we believe here at Covenant that there is a place called hell. We believe it is literal, um, in the sense that it is a place. We believe it is the place where God will send every person who dies in their sins apart from grace in Jesus. And when we do the, I know that's a hard truth still, especially today, when we get into the evangelism series later in the fall, we're going to unpack some of that. How in the world can you believe something like that? that? That would probably be a good Sunday if you're struggling with that concept for you to just make sure that you're here. We believe that that place exists. We do not believe that that's what Jesus is referring to here. And let me tell you why you got to get the force of this. you got to remember where they are. The word Hades simply means the realm of the dead. You remember where the disciples are? Caesarea Philippi? Remember its previous name, Peneus? Dedicated to the worship of the Greek god Pan? Pagan place filled with pagan people. Jesus intentionally takes his disciples to the first century equivalent of the Vegas Strip. There's a reason why this exchange is happening in this place. Jesus never does anything by accident. He is very intentional. He does this. He has this exchange. He has this exchange in this place. He does it, brothers and sisters, because as the disciples are hearing his words, they are surrounded by the realm of the dead. They're surrounded by decay. They're surrounded by vulnerability and victimization. They're surrounded by immorality. They're surrounded by greed. This isn't a picture of, of the church on defense. He says the gates of that will not prevail. Gates are a defensive mechanism. When we confess Christ faithfully, when we move forward in the power of the Spirit, as we have learned that we should do and as we have learned how to do over these last three months of this summer series, as we do that and as we do it together, the church becomes the tip of the spear, invading the kingdom of darkness and taking back what rightfully belongs to Jesus. We go into the realm of the dead. We don't run from trouble. We run toward it. 
We run toward vulnerability, toward the danger, toward the darkness, toward the... And we bring the only rescue that is available to all of humanity by telling the greatest story in the history of humanity. That's our calling, is to bring that about. And then, and then we get something else here, too. We're given the authority to do this. Jesus goes on in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, every bad preacher joke begins with a picture of Peter standing at the pearly gates with a set of keys. So let's explain a little bit of what this is. This is an analogy. <coughs> Keys here are a metaphor for authority. And the binding and the loosing imagery is a reference to the church. Again, that's why this is important. There's no category for an individual Christian. He's speaking to these people as one unit. You, don't, you can't carry this authority by yourself. But the church, to the degree that together we are faithful to the message of the gospel, we carry the very authority of Jesus on earth. That's the promise that we're given by our Savior. And so, on your way home today, as you ponder all of the things that we've looked at over these last several weeks in Ephesians 6, on your way home, I want you to look around. That route that you take, wherever it is, some of you are right here in Shepherdstown, some of you cross the bridge over into Maryland, some of you are in northern Virginia, some of you go over to Martinsburg, some of you go down to Charlestown, and you drive through downtown. Whatever that route is, I want you to look at it today differently than you've ever looked at it before. I want you to look at it with the set of spiritual eyes that Jesus commends to us here, that Paul commends to us in Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to think about the addiction and the poverty and the brokenness and the idolatry that exists all around you. I want you to consider the fact that when you watch the news or you pull up the internet on your phone or you look at social media, that you are looking at this with a different set of eyes. I want, to, I want you to consider the fact that you and I, like those early disciples, are surrounded by the realm of the dead. And then I want you to take great hope in the fact that because Jesus has promised that with the confession of him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, clothed in his armor, linked arm and arm with his body. Every time you hear of another crime, another sickness, another suffering, every time you weep at the evidence of the reality that surrounds us, that you will consider those things and that if we will simply accurately proclaim and then live, which is what this next series, People of Justice, is all about. How do you live in that environment as people of the kingdom? We can invade that darkness and bring light. You and I as the body of Christ can take back what rightfully belongs to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are and clothed in the name of and the armor of God that we have been exploring all summer, standing together at each other's backs, moving forward together in the name that is above every name. We, as the body, can and we will overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Let's pray to him together. Father, we thank you for the victory that is ours, the victory that is assured. And yet, Lord, we know that like Peter, we are prone to wander, that we are prone to buckle, that we are prone to, to be cowardly. And so, Father, may this body rise up clothed in the armor of God to be people of integrity, 
People who make right choices. People who stand in and share the gospel. People who wield the sword of the Spirit rightly. People who bear the shield of faith and continue to move forward in spite of Satan doing his worst in our lives and in the life of our church. And Father, may you, by the power of your Spirit and by your grace alone, make this church victorious. Father, we don't deserve this. We confess that we don't. This body of believers shouldn't even be here right now. I should not be standing here right now. We are a testimony to your grace. Lord, may we, may we respond to your continued sustenance, to your continued grace in a way that you are able to make good on your promise, to empower us. And Lord, may the tri-state area never be the same as a result of people placing on the armor of God, linking arm in arm. Lord, I pray for the, the warfare that is so fierce around me right now. I know the stories of so many that are in front of me, and Father, I have wept for them. I continue to pray for them. May their brothers and sisters, whether or not they're aware of situations, pray for their brothers and sisters. Pray for their church family. May we be victorious. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.